Good morning. We're going to go ahead and open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, as we continue to make our way through uh, systematically, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This morning we're going to be picking up the account where we last left off with the baptism of Jesus Christ. Um, We're also going to be taking some time at the conclusion of our service to observe communion together as a church family. That's our church practice. It's just the first Sunday of every month. We like to try and set aside a few minutes uh, to come to the table, to remember our Lord, to remember his broken body, his shed blood, the um, price that he paid for us, that he may secure our freedom uh, from the penalty of our sins. But before we get to that, we're going to get into the Word and see what God has for us. We're going to be covering the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4 as we look at a portion of Scripture that I'm sure most of you have read uh, from before, at least have heard about it uh, one time or another. It's a familiar portion of Scripture that records an important event in the life of Christ. It's the event of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's actually recorded for us in three of the four Gospels and uh, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, record this event for us. John's Gospel is the only one that specifically leaves this event out for whatever reason uh, the Lord led him differently. As we go through our text, we're going to note how the enemy tried to come against our Lord, how the Lord was able to combat that temptation, uh, and then my hope is that we will understand a little bit more about how the enemy operates and how we too can find success and overcome temptation in our own walk with the Lord. The title of our message this morning is The Enemy's Playbook. Okay? The Enemy's Playbook. Will you all please rise to your feet and honor the Lord in His Word and then uh, follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Okay? Luke writes the following in chapter 4, verse one it says then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 13, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This um, time that we have to gather together as a church family to 
Open up your word, Lord, and I hope in like manner to open up our hearts. And Father, I do hope and pray that each of us is coming with an expectant heart, with anticipation that you're going to speak to us, that you're going to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are in incomplete work. We know that you're going to finish that work someday when you call us home. But we're here today, Lord, asking that you might chisel away, that you might mold, that you may shape, that you would do, continue to do that work you desire to do in us. We submit ourselves to you and to your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Last we left off, we had looked at more of the ministry of John the Baptist, and we specifically noted the ministry to his ministry to Jesus as he baptized our Lord in the Jordan River. Now, the baptism was an incredible event, okay, an amazing display of the Lord uh, uh, as God the Father. He called down from the heavens, and God the Holy Spirit descended uh, uh, in bodily form like that of a dove and fell upon God the Son as he was praying and as he had been baptized by John. Well, an incredible sight to behold, an awe-inspiring event to be a part of as the Father's approval no doubt boomed and shook the very presence of all who were there from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Well, in our text this morning, we have what may seem like the antithesis to this event. Instead of this amazing, awe-inspiring display of God among the masses down by the river, we have instead a display of Christ at one of his lowest points. An awful, challenging, and debilitating time of loneliness out in the wilderness. You know, often we will go through seasons like this in our own lives. Often it is after those mountaintop experiences that we find ourselves down in the valley where the enemy is waiting, ready to rob us of our joy in the Lord, ready to attack, ready to do his best to distract us and to get us to forget that wonderful time with the Lord. It happened to Elijah after his mountaintop experience and his victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The next day, as he came down the mountain, the enemy was waiting for him in the form of Jezebel, the evil, wicked queen who swore to take the very life of Elijah. It happened to Peter, James, and John, the disciples, okay, when they came down from their own mountaintop experience with Jesus, when he was transfigured right before their eyes. Okay, when the very first thing they encountered when they came down that mountain was a demon-possessed boy that the other disciples were incapable of doing anything to help. When Moses came down the mountain after meeting with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, what did he find? The enemy at work. Okay? The people worshiping a golden calf instead of the Lord. And so this is something we see throughout the Bible, and we can probably attest to seeing it in our own lives as well. And we haven't yet got really into the text, but I just felt important to explain and let you guys know this right off the bat, 
that listen, the Christian life isn't always going to be mountaintop experiences. We will go through difficulties. We will experience challenges. We will find ourselves in the valley from time to time. But the important thing to note is that it is in the valley where we usually see the most growth in our walk with the Lord. It is in the tough times, in the difficulties, that we most often will see genuine progress in our walk with the Lord, a maturing in our life. He sees us through and He brings us out the other side stronger, more refined and ready to take on the next mountain. And while we experience various highs and lows in our walk, the one thing that remains constant in our life is the Lord. He's with us through them all. In our account, we're going to take note of how the enemy operates, how Jesus combated the attacks of the enemy. You see, in any battle, it's so important that we know and understand our enemy. Knowing how the enemy operates. Knowing what their tendencies are. Okay? Knowing their strengths, their weaknesses. It's very vital to overcoming anyone in any sort of opposition or competition. Whether we're talking military war strategy or sporting events and games or even a friendly board game. I think those do exist, at least that's what I've heard. Okay? Knowing your opponent and how they operate will give you a crucial advantage. If we want to see success and continue to walk in the victory that Christ has won for us, we need to make sure that we are aware of how the enemy operates and we how we can combat his tactics. And so, in our text this morning, Jesus gives us a great example to follow. So let's jump into the opening verses of our text as we set the scene. Verses 1 and 2, again, Luke writes, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. We'll stop right there. Mark's gospel actually tells us that it was immediately after Jesus' baptism that this event took place. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. So Jesus went from a time of prayer and the Spirit descending upon him straight into a time of temptation and the devil's attacks upon him. Now, before we get in any further into this text, we need to get a few things straight before we continue. Number one, I need you all to realize something, okay? That the devil is real, okay? That he is crafty, that he is powerful, but he is not the counterpart to God. Some people think of the devil as the counterpart to God, the equal to God, as if there was a good God and a bad God. There's God the Father, then there's the devil, and they kind of are you know, opposed at each other, somewhat equals. That is not true, okay? The devil is a created angelic being. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent, okay? Meaning he can be in all places at all times, okay? He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, okay? He is not God. He is not a God. There is only one God, and there is none like him. He is incomparable. 
He is unparalleled. He is matchless and supreme. The devil, listen, is nothing compared to the Lord. We need to understand that before we continue going further. Number two, we need to understand that the devil is constantly bringing accusations against the Lord and against the Lord's people. The Greek word for devil literally means false accuser. Okay, the Hebrew word Satan means the same thing, false accuser. His title tells us what he loves to do. He loves to bring false accusations against the Lord and the people of the Lord trying to divide us without any reason other than just to tear us apart. He is a slanderer, wanting to spread lies and falsehoods for the scriptures tell us that he is the father of lies. John chapter 8 verse 44 tells us the devil was a murderer from the beginning and that he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, another thing that's very important for us to note here is that not only was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was led by the Spirit as well into this wilderness experience you know some people have the false assumption that the holy spirit will always lead them beside the still waters as described in psalm 23 right we know psalm 23 it's a favorite of many the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake Some people stop there and they think that life with the Lord at the lead, okay, when I'm being led by the Lord and led by the Spirit, well, that means nothing but green pastures, still waters, and wonderful, peaceful paths of righteousness. But the psalm continues. If you're familiar with it, you know the next verse says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God does lead us beside still waters and in green pastures and on these wonderful paths of righteousness, but He also leads us through the valley, the shadow of death. He's with us in each of them, leads us to them and leads us through them, both places. Jesus was being led by the Spirit into a long and difficult time of testing, and the Spirit may do the same in our lives as well. The Bible has a few things to say about testing and tempting that we need to understand. There are a number of different words that are used, but there are two main uh, Greek words, and these are the root words, and a lot of them are uh, branched off of these two words. Okay, These two Greek words, words have the idea of testing someone for a purpose there's a purpose behind the testing one is doc dokimazo okay dokimazo uh this term is a metallurgist term for testing the genuineness of something by fire the fire reveals the true metal by burning off um purifying if you will the draws the impurities okay this physical process it became a powerful idiom for god and or humans testing others and so this term is used actually only in the positive sense of testing with the view towards acceptance 
okay? We're going to test this thing by fire to, to draw out everything that's good in it, okay? Uh, to remove everything that's bad and just be left with good stuff, right? The, the precious stuff, okay? Scriptures like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 come to mind where Paul writes of our works and he says each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test, okay, same word, each one's work of what sort it is. Okay, so our works will be tested and then they're going to be refined in the fire and all that, that is good, it will remain. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 speaks about our faith. Peter writes that our faith being much more precious than gold than that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it has this positive outcome after the testing. Even the Old Testament uses this same type of language as it states in Proverbs. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. And so we have this one main word that talks about testing with that idea of acceptance. The other word is the Greek word pyrazo. Okay, pyrazo. This term has the connotation of examination for the purpose of fault finding or rejection. It's used in connection with temptation and trials. It speaks of setting a trap or attempting to catch um, someone or something in a mistake of some kind. The religious leaders tested Jesus on numerous occasions trying to trap him. This is the word that was used to get him to say something that could be used against him. This is the word that's used in our text this morning when it says that Jesus was being tempted for 40 days by the devil. The devil was wanting to find fault with Jesus. He was wanting to get Jesus to do or say something that could be used against him, that he could bring accusation against him. Now, interestingly enough, these words are sometimes used together, like in the epistle James. For there in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and it's a form of the word pyrazo, uh, knowing that the testing, okay, a form of the word dokamazo, of your faith produces patience. You see, it's possible for the Lord to use something in a good sense that the enemy purposed for evil. Something that was meant to be a trap, something that was meant to be a trial, a temptation, can be used by the Lord to test us, to work in us the things that He longs to work in us, like patience. Joseph is the classic example of this, right? You guys know his brothers, they sold him off into slavery, but God used it for good. Joseph would declare in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. James later states, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, a form of pyrazo, for when he has been approved, okay, a form of the word dokamazo, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so we see, again, enduring something perhaps meant for bad, for temptation, and God turning it into something that's able to prove or to test us and reveal our love for the Lord. But I want you to note this. James continues in the next three verses, in verses 13, 14, and 15, he continues saying, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There is a distinction here that we need to understand. Listen, God will test us. But God will never tempt us. If we find ourselves in a difficult situation where we are being tempted and we succumb to that sin, we can't turn around and blame God and say, well, God, you know, this is God's fault. No, 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 no. It's not God's fault. You were enticed by your own sinful desires. It's your fault, okay? Now, God could have used that situation for good if you wouldn't have succumbed to sin. It could have been something God used to approve of you. But because we fail, then we know that's not of the Lord, okay? And so there is a distinction between these two things, and we need to understand that difference. God will test, but he will never tempt us. He will give us opportunities to have our faith tested, strengthened, proved in the fire, but he will never tempt us to do evil. Okay? Back to our text. Hopefully we understand the differences in how God uses testing for our good and how the enemy tries to use temptation for our bad. Okay? In our text, Jesus is being led by God. He's being led by the Spirit, but it's being tempted by the devil. And so we have this balance going on. Okay? Now, the latter part of verse 2 tells us that Jesus has not eaten for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, we're told that he was hungry. This is important for us to note. You see, when someone fasts, they will feel hunger for the first few days. For about four or five days, they will be very hungry. Okay? But after those first four or five days, their hunger will begin to subside. Okay? The body will actually start to tap into their natural fat reserves as fuel. The fact that Jesus is feeling hunger again here indicates to us that his body has depleted all of its reserves and he is basically starting to starve to death. Physically, he would be extremely fatigued and weak. His physical body is beginning to fail him at this moment. And this is when the devil arrives on scene with his first tactic. Let's continue and we'll see what that is. Verse 3 and 4 says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. At the end of the 40 days, with Jesus literally beginning to starve to death, the devil comes along and tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I want you to understand with me that the devil is not questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. When it says if, it could also be understood as since. It was as if the devil was saying, since you are the Son of God, well, go ahead and turn those stones into bread. The devil knew that Jesus was more than able to do so, but again, that wasn't his angle. The devil wasn't simply trying to get Jesus to prove that he was capable of turning stones to bread. He knew he could do that. So what is his angle? Well, 
What the devil is doing is appealing to the flesh of Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to use his divine resources to feed his flesh. The devil is saying, since you are the son of God, why be hungry? Why not just make some bread for yourself? It'd be no big deal. Hey, I mean, you've been out here for 40 days. You're starving to death. Eat something already. The enemy of our souls uses the same bag of tricks over and over again. The enemy's playbook really only has three main plays in it. Three main ways that he tries to tempt us and get us to fall away from the Lord. And they're outlined for us in the book of 1 John. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? They, it says... Is they are not of the Father, but of the world. The enemy's playbook involves elements of those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The enemy doesn't need a whole lot of variation. Because you know what? He's found that these three things are simple, and they're quite effective at getting us to fall. He's been using these same tactics ever since the beginning, way back in the Garden of Eden. Satan was successful in getting the first Adam to fall by using these tactics, and so he's going to try and use them again against the last Adam as well. And so here the devil pulls out of his bag of tricks the lust of the flesh, just like he did with Eve in the garden. There the devil got Eve to doubt God's word and God's love and his care for her. He basically told her that God was holding out on her keeping the best for himself, denying her the opportunity to satisfy the flesh with all the fruit in the garden, not just the ones that were God-approved. Here he seems to be doing similarly, as if to say, aren't you God's beloved son? Why are you so hungry? Why has God not provided you any food while out here? He's holding out on you. You need to provide food for yourself. You need to satisfy your flesh. You're dying out here. The devil even does the same to us when he says, Go ahead. You deserve it. Why should everyone else have all the fun? You need to give in and and just, you know, satisfy the flesh. It's okay. You know what? You're already a child of God. It won't matter. But there's another thing that the devil's doing that's a little more subtle here. He's asking Jesus to separate the physical from the spiritual. Feeding your flesh, it's it's just a natural physical thing, okay? It doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual. Go ahead, just turn those stones into bread. Listen, whenever we start dividing things in our life into the realms of the physical and the spiritual, we are bound to leave God out of areas that he rightfully belongs. We may divide life into, you know, our work life, our play life, you know, our family life, our our God, church, ministries, maybe hobbies, vacation, whatever you, however you divide your life up and whatnot, okay? But when we do so, we leave God out of areas of our life that he was meant to be and that he needs to be part of. In fact, he needs to be part of every part of our life. God must be first in everything. 
We must consider him in all our facets of life. We must put him first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, what are these things? What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, you know, those types of things, okay? All those things shall be added to you. You first and foremost, you seek God's kingdom. God needs to permeate all facets of our life. We need to consider the Lord and the spiritual when it comes to our work, when it comes to our play, when it comes to our family, our vacation, our hobbies. He needs to be a part of everything. The devil was trying to separate the spiritual from the physical, saying that you know fulfilling the physical flesh didn't have anything to do with the spiritual, okay? It doesn't really matter. You can, you know, that doesn't, feeding your flesh is not going to impact your spiritual life whatsoever. They're totally disconnected. But he was wrong. And Jesus withstood his temptation. Jesus responded to the devil's tactic by quoting the word. The word of God is our only offensive weapon in the armor of God. It is the sword of the spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And we must learn to properly wield this sword in combating the attacks of the enemy. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is recounting to the people how God sustained their physical bodies while wandering through the desert those 40 years and how God provided manna from heaven in order to feed them. The people needed to trust God and his promise to give them the land and to see them through the desert. Deuteronomy 8.3 states, So he, referring to God, Moses is speaking, So he humbled you, speaking to the people, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus knew his mission. He knew God's promises He knew why he came to this earth and he knew that God's will wasn't going to allow him to die out in the wilderness. Okay, Just like he didn't allow the Israelites to die out in the wilderness. Jesus didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He could and he would continue to allow God to provide for him all his physical and spiritual needs. He trusted in God's word to meet his every need. And that's how you and I must also fight against this tactic of the enemy, the lust of the flesh. We must trust in God's word to meet our every need, both physical and spiritual. Well, the enemy wasn't done yet. He had more up his sleeve. Let's read verses 5 through 8 to see what else happened next. Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall worship serve we'll stop right there when the lust of the flesh didn't work the devil moved on to his next play this time trying to trap jesus through the lust of the eyes in what was more than likely some sort of vision the devil showed jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time 
and declared that he would give it all to Jesus if Jesus would simply worship before him. Satan claimed that the kingdoms of the world had been delivered to him. And listen, Jesus didn't refute his claim. And so it makes us ask the question, when and, and how did the devil obtain dominion over this world? Once again, we go back to the garden, back to the beginning in Genesis. God had made the world. He made everything in it. He subsequently relinquished dominion over the earth to man. After creating Adam and Eve, God declared to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God had created the earth and He gave it to man that they might rule over it, that they might have dominion over it. But when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and they listened and yielded to Satan, they in effect gave to him their rule. He was given dominion over this world. Though Adam and Eve were meant to rule, they yielded their rule to Satan by listening to him rather than listening to the Lord. And that's why Paul describes the devil as the god of this age or the god of this world in many of the other contemporary translations. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, later in John's gospel, Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this world and notes how he will be cast out. And so it would appear that the dominion over the world has been delivered to Satan. And so his offer here is valid. But what is his angle? What is he really doing here? Satan knew that Jesus would ultimately rule and reign. He knew that his hold upon the world was temporary. What he basically offered to Jesus was a shortcut. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of this world that he would eventually rule over, and he offered, to it, he offered it to him right then and there. He was saying that he could rule and reign over the earth without having to go to the cross. He was offering to Jesus all the glory of ruling and reigning over the earth without any of the suffering. You see, the path Jesus was currently on, it had him first going through major suffering prior to entering into his glory. And the devil's offer was, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to go through all of that. I'll give you the glory now. Okay? I'll give you all the kingdoms right now. Okay? All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus responded yet again with the word of the Lord. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy, stating, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. This quote came from Deuteronomy 6.13. There in Deuteronomy 6, Moses was warning the people about forgetting about the Lord and going after the idols of the land that they were going to be entering into. He said, Beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. You see, the lust of the eyes doesn't refer only to looking at something that would tempt or stimulate you to do wrong. You see, the lust of the eyes is seeing any other way than God's to accomplish His purpose. 
The devil was tempting Jesus, telling him that he didn't have to do it God's way, but that he could have it all without the cross if he would simply bow down and worship him. The devil offered Jesus the glory of ruling without the sacrifice, without the suffering of the cross, but God's plan was to first endure great suffering before entering into glory. You see, the devil always tries to tempt us this way. He offers glory and pleasure at first for a short season that ultimately ends in great pain and suffering. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but it ends in pain, it ends in suffering, it ends ultimately in death. God's way is the opposite. God's way is to start with suffering and to end with glory, as described in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He has us endure a little pain and suffering, but our end is glory. Our end is pleasure forevermore in the presence of our Lord. And so the choice is ours. We can have passing pleasure now and suffering for eternity, or we can endure some slight suffering now in order to reap an everlasting glory. Jesus knew that the moment he bowed down to worship Satan, that he would fail the Father's mission. Jesus would have broken the first of the Ten Commandments and failed to be the sinless Lamb of God, able to take away the sins of the world. The offer was to rule over a bunch of sinners that would never be able to become saints because Jesus would not have been able to pay the price for our sins in order to redeem us. Jesus overcame this temptation by reaffirming his choice to do things God's way and to worship and to serve God alone. I want you to notice that. The devil did not say anything about serving He said, all you need to do is bow down and worship me. But Jesus knew that whatever we worship, we will serve. And he knew that bowing down before Satan would be serving the devil. Serving the Lord involves true freedom, but serving the devil is terrible bondage. Jesus knew this and there's no way that he would bow down and worship and serve the devil. Well, the enemy had one more play in his playbook, one more tactic to try and exploit Jesus in his moment of weakness. Read verses 9 through 12 with me. He says, Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan, catching on to Jesus' tactic of relying upon the word of God, was able to quote some scripture himself in this final attempt to trap Jesus and get him to fall. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the highest point of the temple, and told him to jump down, to jump off and that the angels would catch him and bring him safely to the ground. Now the idea is that there would be all sorts of people there to see this magnificent display of God's power. All would see it and they would clamor about Jesus and see him as some sort of powerful being able to do the miraculous. 
The devil was pulling out that last trick that was one of his favorites, one that led to the fall of countless men before our Lord and many after as well. It is the pride of life. It was as if Satan was saying, man, can you imagine? Can you imagine the crowds that will flock to see you, Jesus? They will hear you if you will perform this great display of your power. If you will just jump from this peak and allow God's angels to catch you, safely transport you to the ground, then it will show all the people who you really are. It will show them how powerful you are. You see, the pride of life is the temptation for excessive greatness or excessive power or excess power and excess greatness this is how satan got eve to take of the fruit he got her to think that partaking of the fruit would make her like god he tempted her to want something greater than what god had given to her she wanted more power more influence she wanted to be like god and she partook and she shared it with adam and so this tactics worked before But to add good measure to his offer, Satan even added some scripture of his own. He's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. The psalm describes God's protection for those who trust him. And of course, the devil is twisting the scriptures to make them say something that it doesn't really say. In context, the psalm promises God's protection for those who while being in his will and serving him find themselves in danger. It does not promise protection for artificially created crises in which we call to God in order to test his love and care for us. We should not, we dare not test the Lord. And that is exactly how Jesus responded. Jesus said, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This was a quote from Deuteronomy once again. This time, chapter 6, verse 16. There Moses reminded the people not to tempt the Lord as they had done previously in Massah. Massah was the location where the people complained about not having any water and tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The people, they were demanding of Moses and God, really, a powerful sign to prove that he was with them. They were thirsty They didn't have any water, and they said, well, is God with us or not? Show us, prove it to us, bring us some water, you know, out of the rock. Jesus knew that the jump would be putting the Lord to test, demanding him to prove himself. Jesus didn't need to do so. He didn't need the approval or favor of man. He had God the Father's approval, and that was enough for him. The temptation to do something spectacular, to gain an audience and to give Jesus some favor with man, it was not part of his mission. It was not part of God's plan, and so he rejected the temptation of the devil. Jesus overcame the temptation of the pride of life by balancing Scripture with Scripture. He didn't allow the enemy to twist God's word into something that would lead him to test the Lord. Do you guys realize something? I want you to note this, okay? Most cults, most false religions that are out there okay are based upon scripture they've just taken it and they've removed it from its context they've twisted it and mutilated it into something that it says when really that's not what god meant for it to say we need to be good students of the word in order to be able to spot 
when the word of God is being twisted, when it's being manipulated and used in a dishonoring way. We need to understand the whole counsel of God, that we can rightly detect something that doesn't line up with the totality of Scripture. Okay? We need to know the whole counsel. Okay? When someone quotes some odd verse you know, from the Old Testament, we're like, oh, I guess so if that's in the Bible. Well, no, we need to know what it, how that applies through the entirety of God's Word. The totality of Scripture. Let's read this final verse. We'll wrap up our time together in this study. Verse 13 says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Scriptures attest, Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's exactly what we see here in our text. Jesus resisted the attempts of the devil to get him to stumble and to fall and the devil departed. But note that while this season of temptation in the wilderness had come to a conclusion, it didn't mean that Jesus would never again face the devil. The devil departed from him and waited for another opportune time to once again come against Jesus and try to thwart God's plan. You see, one victory over sin and temptation does not mean that you will never again be tempted. We must continue to fight the good fight, continue to win the battles that come our way. We need to be ready for the attacks of the enemy and not allow ourselves to be caught off guard. You see, because the devil is always looking for an opportune time to attack. Don't give it to him. Don't give him the opportunity. If you want, excuse me, I want you to note something else that's very important here. I want you to note that everything that Jesus used in this fight against the enemy is something that is readily available to each and every one of us who have called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus, as we noted already last week, he was a man of prayer. He had just spent some time in prayer God when he was being baptized, okay? He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, and he was a man that was properly equipped with the Word of God. None of those things at Jesus' disposal were things that aren't at our disposal as well. It, it wasn't as if, well, yeah, Jesus was able to do that. Well, because he's God and he's got infinite resources. No, 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 no. All of his resources that he had available to him, we have access to as well. Okay? We can pray. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. He will lead us and guide us, and we have the Word of God available to us. And even on top of that, we have Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf before the throne of the Father. And if we would take full advantage of all the Lord offers to us, we too would be able to cause the devil to flee just as Jesus did. 